Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. It's time for school. Rock school. With your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. You had to try reaching out to the members of the Rolling Stones. Any luck, even anonymously? No. No. Uh, That's too bad. They were they were not interested in speaking. Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show here on the Rock School Radio Network. My name is Joe Burns. I'm sorry Tammy isn't with me and probably won't be with me for the next month or so because I am starting Joe's Book Club. I think Oprah stole the idea from me. But here through the podcast and through the radio station, I have been lucky enough to be recognized by a a slew of publishers and they're starting to send me books. And this summer was just an avalanche. I have six different books and I'm going to start with one today and I hope to do the majority of them right in a row because I didn't get a bad book. They're all good. They're all something you should think about if you want to give somebody a book for a a Christmas present. Today, we'll start off with Saul Austerlitz. Uh, He is a New York writer who has multiple books, and he has a new one called Just a Shot Away, Peace, Love, and Tragedy with the Rolling Stones at Altamont. And he's been nice enough to come on the show and speak to us for an hour. What you hear on the show, however, is not everything we spoke about. If you wish to hear the entire unedited interview with all the music taken out, go to the website that is southeastern.edu slash rock school. And once you're there, click on episodes and you will be able to pick up not only the show, but the raw audio. And furthermore, during the show, Please understand that when you hear a live song, they're not all going to be live, but when you hear a live song, it was recorded at Altamont because we are going to talk about Altamont just a shot away. Saul Austerlitz today on Joe's Book Club here on Rock School. I I want to congratulate you on this book. I read a lot of rock books and the, the, the book you've written, Just a Shot Away, is wonderful because I I know the story of Altamont, or I thought I did, going in, and it your book just simply blew apart a lot of the the facts that I thought I knew about Altamont. Is is that what you found when you started researching the book? Well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I I had been hoping to approach it from a slightly different angle. Um, and in particular, one of the goals that I had for myself in working on this project was uh, trying to tell Meredith Hunter's story more fully, trying to delve into some of the details of his life before the concert. I felt like what I had encountered in the writing about Altamont and the documentaries and, and the other material that's available was some information about that day in his life, but very little about what had come before it or what had come after it. And I felt like that was a really crucial piece of the story that hadn't really been told before. Even Grill Marcus on the front of the book 
states that the focus on Meredith Hunter and his family is is nothing short of heroic, which I thought was was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, Grill Marcus is one of my writing heroes, so to have him say that was immensely gratifying for oh, me, personally. Of course, frame that and put it up on the wall. <laughs> exactly. Show it to everybody who comes over. Well, I followed to the station With a suitcase in my hand Yeah, I found a station With a suitcase in my hand Whoa, it's hard to tell, it's hard to tell I told you that one of the things that I really enjoyed about your book was the fact that my long-held beliefs had sort of been blown apart. Here's one of them. I had always thought that this was an ego thing by the Rolling Stones stating that, look, we weren't at, we weren't at Woodstock, and if you can have one out east, we can have one out west. Was, and I didn't get that from the preparation. Is, was, that, was it an ego thing of the Stones that we want our own Woodstock? My sense of it was that for them, it was somewhat less about Woodstock and more uh, the desire to to make up for some of the criticism that they had faced over the course of their tour. There had been a, a good a good deal of blowback uh, from journalists and fans that the tickets for their concerts were too expensive. And, you know, there's something funny to us in 2018 about people complaining that paying $7 to see the Rolling Stones is price gouging. But, Mm -hmm. you know, at the time it was felt like they were charging too much money for their shows. And so I think that their desire was partially to kind of offer something to the fans to, to placate them, to, to offset this criticism. And then partially, and this maybe came more from the San Francisco bands, uh, a kind of desire to have a West Coast Woodstock to say, well, you know, if we're going to have this glorious apotheosization of the counterculture, why is it happening in upstate New York? Why isn't it happening in the Bay where everything got started in the first place? Right. So I, I think there was there was something of a desire to kind of take the power back, but it didn't, as far as I could tell, it didn't necessarily center on the Rolling Stones themselves. Okay. I'll give you another one of my long-held beliefs that you that you blew out of the water. I had always heard people say that uh, the Hell's Angels were hired as uh, as um, uh, security and such. I had heard that they were not hired as security; they just happened to be there and were hired on the spot. But your book suggests that no, that's not true. They were hired going in. Yeah. Um... You know, the the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane had already been having these kind of impromptu outdoor concerts for some time. They would show up in Golden Gate Park. Fans would have, you know, an hour or two to 
to hear about it and, and make their way over. And they'd quickly play a concert and then pack up and go. And so the Hells Angels, who were associates and kind of friends of the bands, uh, were hired to guard the generators. They would stand in front of the generators and look menacing, make sure that nobody messed with them so that their equipment would be protected and the concert wouldn't be interrupted by, you know, some some fan who was trying to cause trouble. Mm-hmm. And so initially the plan for this free concert that becomes Altamont uh, was going to be similar, just bigger, also in Golden Gate Park, but instead of, you know, a few thousand people, they would have maybe a hundred thousand people show up. So given that the Hells Angels had already worked at these shows, given that they already knew them, given that they didn't really want to associate themselves with the police, um, the initial planning was to have the Hells Angels do the same job. And even when the concert shifted locations, even when the number of people involved ballooned, there wasn't really a thought of, well, don't we need to have someone else come? Or, you know, are the Hells Angels up to the task of providing security for an audience of hundreds of thousands of people. That's, that seemed to be one of the, one of the places where, where there wasn't this further round of planning that would have been tremendously helpful. and sisters, brothers and sisters. Come on now. That means everybody just cool out. Will you cool out, everybody? I know. I'm here. Everybody be cool now. Come on. All right. How are we doing over there? All right, can we still make it down the front? Is there anyone there that's hurt, huh? Everyone all right, okay. All right. I think we're cool, we can go. We always have something very funny happens when we start that number. Do myself. I'm 
uh, of people, I mean, who's fighting what for? Who's fighting and what for? Why are we fighting? Why are we fighting? We don't want to fight. Come on. Okay, so the dead see this. The Grateful Dead see this. They drop out. You tell the story of Garcia in his, in his trailer, lying on the ground, chattering his teeth. Do you lay any blame on them? Should they have played? If, is their not playing something that simply threw more kerosene on the fire? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, obviously, they're, you know, they're looking out the window of their trailer and they're seeing the chaos that's happening out there. They're seeing what the Hells Angels are doing. And they decide not to play. They decide that it's not safe for them. And I, I have a lot of sympathy for that. Obviously, you know, it's it's hard to put yourself in harm's way when things are going so poorly. I do, I do feel like in comparison with the Rolling Stones, who see the same thing and decide to head out and play and see if they can calm the crowd down musically, uh, I think that that's the more courageous decision, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And I think that for me, the more troubling aspect of the Grateful Dead's behavior is that in addition to not playing, in addition to kind of absenting themselves from this concert that they played a a major part in planning, um, they really remove themselves from the whole discussion. And so by virtue of not having played, they kind of erase themselves from the narrative. And so where the Stones are consistently held up as uh, the villains or, you know, accused of having disastrously mismanaged this concert. And, and, you know, I think that there's some room, there's a lot of room for feeling that way. The Grateful Dead aren't really brought up often in that same context by virtue of not having played, even though they're, you know, almost as significant, if not completely as significant as the Stones in terms of who brought this concert together, who planned mm-hmm. it, who made it happen. But you also stated earlier that there was that belief system at the time. It was going to be okay. It'll all work out. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I think that it's, it's helpful also to keep in mind this strange sort of alliance between the Hells Angels and the San Francisco bands that, you know, they were they were aligned in being part of the counterculture. They were aligned in being kind of opposed to the mainstream. And a lot of what seemed to us to be their extremely obvious differences were papered over by virtue of what they agreed on. Mm-hmm. They liked the same kinds of music. They liked the same kinds of drugs. They both didn't like the police. They were both, you know, kind of outside of the mainstream. And so you, you sort of see how this... Um, disastrous mistake ends up happening. You you can get a sense of how it is that these bands can think that, you know, an explicitly racist, violent group like the Hells Angels could be understood as their friends. Mm -hmm. We need to take our first break here on Rock School. We are speaking with Saul Austerlitz, author of Just a Shot Away, Peace, Love, and Tragedy with the Rolling Stones at Altamont. Once again, if you wish to hear the entire unedited interview, please go to the website, southeastern.edu slash rockschool. Go ahead and click on episodes and you'll find it. Back in a minute here on Rock School.
Hey, Rock School listener, if you are listening to this on podcast and thinking to yourself, gosh, this would sound so much better on the radio, well, it can be. The Rock School Radio Show is available to any radio station here in the United States or abroad. We already have one in Spain. What you need to do if you'd like to help us out is contact your local radio station and say, hey, why don't you run the Rock School Radio Show? It's free. Yeah, free. Doesn't cost them anything. We will take as many affiliates as we can and We're giving it away. Have them get in touch with me or Todd. Todd will talk to them. Go to southeastern.edu slash rockschool. Southeastern.edu slash rockschool. And there's a little button on there that says contact us. And that's where they contact us. Thanks a lot. Right there in advance. Hopefully we can get on another radio station. Thanks to you. I want to go a a completely different direction. Let's take a hard left here. Uh, I'm not Grill Marcus, but I do want to once again applaud you on the background of Meredith Hunter. You know, he came from a bad place. He was no angel, but still did not deserve to die. Tell us uh, in your research, what did you come up with about Meredith Hunter that sort of surprised you? Well, I had the the good fortune to be able to speak to Meredith Hunter's sister, Dixie Ward, and to his niece, Tammy Parker. And they filled me in on a lot of the details of their family history. And it really helped me to understand his life and and his death in a very different context. I feel like Altamont is usually a story that gets told about rock concerts and bad planning and hippies uh, and the Rolling Stones. And all of those factors are important to it. But I think it's equally important as important to understand Meredith Hunter in the context of American race relations um, and the Bay Area in particular. And so uh, it it was really eye-opening for me to be able to speak to his family and and get a sense of what his family life had been like and and the struggles involved and, um, and sort of see what the counterculture looked like kind of at second hand um, through the eyes of African-Americans who weren't always welcomed or included in this, you know, sort of momentary paradise that had been created. And I I think it it kind of helpfully complicates some of the narrative of the 1960s to think about the ways in which African-Americans were and were not included in some of these celebratory moments. Mm-hmm. I, I will tell you, that's uh, I, I, I know you're here pitching a book, and I know I'm supposed to say nice things, uh, but I'm not doing it because of the show. I was really knocked backwards when I read about Meredith Hunter because he is always, like you said, the secondary story. Yes, he died, but he's the secondary story. We know him as the kid in the the lime green suit, and and here is where apparently all of my belief systems about um, Altamont really start to run into trouble. I had always understood that it was his girlfriend that was interested in Jagger, and that's the reason they were at the concert, and and PCP was getting into his system, and he was getting angrier because his girlfriend loved Jagger, but you say it's not even close. They even thought about splitting before the Stones got on stage. Yeah, you know, again, it's, it's 
possible that some of those things are true, but from from my reporting and from what people told me, um, he Meredith was the one who was interested in coming to the show, and he wasn't particularly invested in the Rolling Stones. As as far as I could tell, he wasn't a big Stones fan, um, but he liked these events. You know, he liked. He liked these kinds of big gatherings. He liked the idea of being together with lots of other young people in a big crowd. Um, you know, I think that that the idea of of music and drugs and good times uh, was as appealing to him as to any other young person in mm-hmm. the Bay Area. But as as far as I un- could understand, it wasn't really any of the bands in particular that interested him or his girlfriend. They, that was just kind of a secondary aspect. It could have been anyone on the stage. It was the happening he wanted to be at. Yeah, I think there could have even been not any music. I, I think that the music was was irrelevant. There's one thing, uh, what we need, Sam, we need an ambulance. We need a doctor by that scaffold there. If there's a doctor, can you get to there? Okay, here we're gonna, we're gonna, I don't know what we're doing. When we get to really like the end and we all wanna go absolutely crazy and like jump on each other, then we'll stand up again, you know what I mean? Everyone keep that, sit down, I mean, just keep cool. Let's just relax, let's just get into a groove. Come on, we can get it together. Come on, sit down. And I've, I've had people say to me, yeah, but he was carrying a gun. Again, you explain that well, the race relations of the 60s. It, it wasn't because he was a tough guy and all. That was it, literal, simple protection that he would carry the weapon with him because he was an African-American man dating a white woman at this concert. I, I do think that that's part of it. And I think it's it's helpful to understand as well that he doesn't, get his gun until partway through the day when he when he already has seen how bad things are getting close to the stage um and how how the hell's angels are mistreating people he goes back to his car and gets it and it's to my mind you know not a, a good decision to have done that not a good decision to bring a gun to a concert not a good decision to go get it um but it, it helped me to understand the context of how that decision comes about and also to remember that Meredith Hunter was 18 years old. You know, I feel like he's often discussed as an adult and it's helpful to my mind to remember that he's a teenager. You know, he's he's still someone who is in the process of forming himself. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you another one that I always believe that your book debunks. 
And, and that is that I had heard, again, that the, the girlfriend was uh, interested in Jagger, and that got him upset. So he pulled out the, the weapon, it's a, a long barrel twenty two chrome-plated pistol, and got off a shot at Jagger. But no, he wasn't shooting at all at Mick, if he shot at all at, at Mick yeah, Jagger. Yeah, you know, there, there wasn't, I, I couldn't get to a definitive place on this, but there there did not seem to be any hard evidence that he had actually fired his gun at all. There were no bullet holes, no shell casings. Um, there didn't seem to be any context that would fit that. Uh, some people in the aftermath of the concert um, proposed a kind of narrative where Meredith Hunter was, you know, another wannabe uh, assassin, you know, that he was, he was there to assassinate Mick Jagger, uh, you know, sort of in the same vein as, as Martin Luther King or Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, there just didn't seem, there doesn't seem to be any evidence whatsoever for mm-hmm. anything like that. And um, struck me as being a kind of ex post facto narrative that was created to justify some of the violence that had taken place on that day. But nothing about Meredith Hunter's life or about his behavior that day uh, indicated to me that, that there was any truth to that kind of story. I think it might have also come out of the fact that the Hells Angels seemed to have a story right away. They knew they had killed someone, but immediately it, it started as a self-defense element and probably morphed into, we saved Mick Jagger, we are the heroes. That's right. Yeah, and I think it's possible that this, that one part of the story that they told was true. It's possible that somebody had seen the gun and shouted something along the lines of, you know, he's pointing it at the stage or he's pointing it at Jagger. And I, I don't see any reason to believe that that was actually true, but it's possible that someone had heard that during the heat of the moment. But mm-hmm. I think, again, it, it's it's helpful to understand that what went down between Meredith Hunter and the Hells Angels was started by the Hells Angels. The Hells Angels began the fight that took place. They began by pulling him down off of a speaker box that he was standing on by, you know, beating him. Um, That Hunter pulled out a gun, mistakenly, but pulled out a gun in in self-defense. And that long after the gun was knocked away from him and that, you know, whatever a crisis had emerged was presumably over, the Hells Angels continued beating and kicking him out of sight of the crowd and out of sight of the cameras. So, you know, it's not something that we see in Gimme Shelter Mm -hmm. um, until he was near, near death. So the Hells Angels not only began whatever took place between them, but also extended it far beyond anything that could be seen as necessary to anybody's protection. And I think it's helpful to think about this in the context of who, you know, the health angels as security providers, right? If we're picturing uh, the police providing security at Altamont, uh, and let's say someone had pulled out a weapon at the concert, once that person is subdued or once that person has had their weapon knocked away from them, the, you know, the interaction should be over, right? At worst, you, that person is put in handcuffs or taken away, 
right? And and that's it. And yet the health angels, you know, see this as an opportunity to extract their revenge or just, you know, announce their authority and and carry on well past any point of actual necessity until Meredith Hunter is is almost dead. Uh, it, it, what was the line from the Rolling Stone thing? If if Woodstock opened the summer of love, Altamont closed it. it yeah, was, it was bad. Yeah, yeah. mentioned and I have mentioned there is a documentary on the Altamont concerts uh, called Gimme Shelter and Mm -hmm. the one thing that always I guess shocked me about it was the idea of there is footage of Meredith Hunter being at least stabbed once in the back and Mm -hmm. they know the person Alan Passaro how is it possible this guy is not convicted that was something else you hit hard which I thought was really good yeah, the, the story of the trial, I think, is quite interesting. So Pissarro does end up being arrested and charged with murder, in part on the basis of the footage. The footage shows uh, someone uh, someone who's a hell's angel stabbing Meredith Hunter uh, at least twice. We can see him stabbing him twice in, in the footage. And so it took the, the authorities some time to figure out who the person was in particular, until they eventually determined it was a, a young health angel prospect named Alan Pissarro. And Pissarro ends up hiring a lawyer who has um, a, a really interesting defense that helps him uh, get off. And what his lawyer, a, a man named George Walker, argues is that Pissarro was acting under uh, a legal guidance called self-defense of others. So Pizarro is not protecting himself. Uh, he wasn't in any physical danger. But the argument is that having heard this shout that emerges, you know, that he's he's going to shoot Jagger or, or something along those lines, that Pizarro leaps into action to protect somebody else from immediate physical danger. Um, and that having done so, you know, he's he's sort of exempt from punishment. And and. What Walker does extends beyond that to kind of argue multiple things at once. So on the one hand, he's arguing this idea of self-defense of others. And on the other, having looked at the um, postmortem evidence, which says that that Hunter was stabbed, I believe, five times, uh, the lawyer argues that based on what we can see of the footage, um, 
neither of the stabbing, neither of the stab wounds that 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 he that Pissarro is responsible for um, are the the killing blows. He says that you know maybe one of them actually is just a nick on his neck, and the other one is this relatively shallow stab wound at the top of his back, and so. The killing blow was delivered by unknown others, but not by his client. And so based on that argument, uh, Pissarro ends up being acquitted of of the charges. And and then has to go back to jail and serve out time for something else. Yeah, he was already in jail uh, when he was arrested for this. So he he was already there before and had to stay there afterward, but was acquitted of this more significant charge. It's time for the second break here on Rock School. Give our affiliates the ability to put in their commercials. We'll be back and we'll continue talking with Saul Austerlitz. Just a shot away. Peace, love, and tragedy with the Rolling Stones at Altamont. It's a great Christmas stocking stuffer if you're looking for something to get somebody. Here on Joe's Book Club on Rock School. Hey, Rock School listener, hear this little thing going on right now, this this music bed that goes on for a minute. We do it twice during the show. This is where a sponsor should be. This is where an underwriter should be. If you or some business you know might want to be that sponsor or underwriter of the Rock School radio show, please have that person give us a call, 985-549-2330. Once again, 985 985- Five four nine two three three zero. You can sponsor the radio show. You can sponsor the podcast. You can sponsor both. There's other ways of doing it. So call that number, 985-549-2330, and talk with Rachel. Or you can talk to Todd if you really want to talk to Todd for some reason. But Rachel's really who you want to speak to. 549-2330. Thanks. Well, I'll tell you, again, another thing from your book that... that again, shattered some of my beliefs. What I know, and again, I, I wasn't old enough to have attended anything in 1969, but it, since it was given to me later in life as a story, I was of the opinion that Altamont happened, everybody knew it was horrible, uh, Rolling Stone runs their expose, and everybody hates the Stones, but you suggest, no, there was a solid month of just lazy reporting where everybody said, well, great concert. It was wonderful. Thanks, Rolling Stones. Yeah, that was a really interesting aspect of the story for me, um, was understanding how the story emerged and, and the rate at which, at which it emerged. You know, we're sort of, in our present moment, it's hard to imagine people not knowing about something bad that's happened in a big crowd. You know, if this happened in 2018, there would be iPhone footage that was you know, on the news and online in minutes. And here, I think a combination of this context of where you sat determining what you knew and the way that it was immediately reported meant that the details emerged much more slowly. So most of the country ended up reading a story uh, that went out over the AP wire uh, that was put together by a local journalist, someone with the San Francisco Examiner, and, you know, just based on the way that deadlines worked, the way that, you know, having to get a story in the Sunday paper worked in the late 60s, the journalist could really only stay at the concert for a few hours. So he saw some of what happened early on, um, maybe also saw some of the scuffling during Jefferson Airplane set, 
uh, but sort of wrote this celebratory piece, assuming that things would calm down and get better, um, and wrote the story about how it was another great day in in the counterculture, uh, and there were a few minor scuffles, but then everyone kind of cooled off. Um, and so that ended up being the story that that people first read and people first saw. And it wasn't until Rolling Stone decided to tell a deeper version that anyone really heard something to the contrary. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's really interesting the way that Rolling Stone emerges here as uh, a sort of serious journalistic publication. You know, they were, at the time, they were a rock newspaper. They were kind of the um, official publication of the local Bay Area counterculture. And they weren't, you know, it was already a good publication, but it wasn't necessarily one that did a lot of hard-hitting investigative journalism. And uh, this really brought that out. And in part, I think it's due, it's, it should be credited to the managing editor at the time, John Burks, who mm-hmm. had been trained in the Newsweek system and had really, you know, spent some time as a, as a reporter. And Newsweek system... Uh, ask journalists to, to kind of file background stories and then leave it to the editors to compile it together into a kind of voice of God narrative. Right. And I, and one of the things that Brooks realized was he was at the concert. A lot of his journalists were at the concert. Some of them were there to report on it. Some of them were just there to enjoy themselves. Um, and he realized he had a lot of differing perspectives on the day. So he asked all of his writers and his writer's friends who were there to sort of file stories with him about what they'd seen and what they'd heard, what had happened in front of them, and then assembled it together into this kind of kaleidoscopic narrative of the day. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the most crucial part was that he understood that things had gone poorly, and not only understood that, but was willing to express that opinion and, and put that out there, even though you know the the even though Rolling Stone and the Rolling Stones had this uh, very close relationship, and and a lot of the credit is is deservedly due to Jan Wenner also, who was right. willing to say, "I'll take the heat from the Rolling Stones. I'll deal with how angry they're un- undoubtedly going to be at what we're reporting, but let's make sure that we get the story out there and and that it's the truth." Which was if, if if the audience hasn't read the Rolling Stone account of Altamont, it really would be a, a solid half hour of your day. Let me yeah, add. Let's have a party and let's have a good time. The library's our brothers. Well, 
It's a masterpiece. The, the name of the book, Just a Shot Away, Peace, Love, and Tragedy with the Rolling Stones at Altamont, and it is by the man we've been speaking with, Saul Austerlitz. Uh, I'm, I'm absolutely uh, blown back by the book, and I'm so happy you decided to take an hour and speak with us. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. I, uh, I have to say to the audience, look, if you've got a fan, this is a book to buy, especially if you need a, a nice quick Christmas present as the, as the year go on. So, again, thank you so much. Thanks so much.